to This Should Work. This is session 25, an interview with game designer and creator of the Thousand Button Project, Amanda Hudgens, who also creates many, many other alternative controller toys, games, whatever we might call them. Cool stuff. And uh, Amanda is also the editor of the online publication on Winnable, organizer at Rules and Play and Vector, and does all sorts of other cool things. And in this episode, we talk about finding design inspiration. We talk a lot about game development, and we also talk about making things for everyone. Thanks a lot to Amanda for joining me for this interview, and thank you all for continuing to listen. If you want to hear more uh, interviews like this one, check out our website at shouldworkmedia.com or subscribe to us on all of the major places, including iTunes, Spotify, and etc. All right, without further ado, here is our interview with Amanda Hudgens. So this is session 25 of This Should Work right now with uh, Amanda Hudgens, who is the managing editor of Unwinnable. Mm-hmm. You work at Super Soul LLC, which is a, a game company, and you help run um, Rules and Play and Vector yep. uh, through through the collaborative Run Jump Dev. Is there anything that I missed or anything that should, we should add before we get started? And thank you so much, by the way, for doing it. <laughs> oh, you're fine. Um, I think probably the only other thing is that I have my own uh, projects. Um, mm with uh like the stuff i do on my, on my own time which is um sort of the thousand button project and um uh, the guitar smashing game and stuff like that yeah yeah and the globe and you know one question i i wanted to ask you too is um and maybe before we get started and i uh, is is what what uh do you do that as you is it like part of a do you have like a a, a secret company somewhere that you do a lot of that work through um i, and- I have a, a- so it's the the name of my website for that is amandathrows.rocks. And so when I have to sit, have a company name, when I apply to shows, I usually call myself Amanda Throws Rocks. Got and it. that's usually a good cover for me and anyone else who's working with me at that point in time. So that we're all sort of under the same umbrella. Got it. Yeah. You know, and the, and the reason I ask that and, and I, while I, while I'll probably be asking a couple similar questions is because I'm running a class right now, um, uh, uh, at DePaul called the business of indie games where the, the entire stated goal of the class is that they don't fail too bad. So, um, <laughs> and so I might be asking you some questions for, for those students as well, but, um, it's really fine. <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense for me to have a separate sort of brand identity. So my background, one of my backgrounds is in, is in marketing. Yeah. And so um, being able to define myself very clearly as one thing in this case, Amanda throws rocks is terribly helpful for saying um, this is the stuff I do under that umbrella, especially because I'm a person who wears so many hats. Yeah. And because I have a um, frankly unremarkable name, <laughs> I mean that, that's true because like um if you think about other people in the alt control space you've got people like um uh, Robin Baumgarten um or Jerry Belich and their names are at least like easy to hear and parse or, or and laser walker right right, right, which, is, right. which is actually their name right <laughs> um, <laughs> so, right 
That's a great name. That's such a good, I don't have that. Um, I have, I have a name that I have shared with multiple people throughout my life. Like I'll go to college and I would, oh, we would have the same name. Yeah. And even changing it when I got married, it didn't substantially change. And so uh, it was just a factor of like, I need to have an identity of my own. And so for my personal projects, I make them under the umbrella name of Amanda Throws Rocks. It's not a real LLC. I haven't incorporated. I'm not making any money through that. What's what's the... um... What it, it maybe there isn't one, but what is there an origin story for for why it's Amanda throws rocks or it is actually mostly the um the the web address. <laughs> so um, we were trying to find one that was unique that wasn't my first and last name because when I when I got married I took I took my partner's last name and that complicated a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. from like an identity perspective. Yeah. Um, so we were trying to find another name and the dot rocks, uh, subdomain had become available. And so that kind of is where that came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner and I both liked it a lot because it has like a kind of playful edge to it, but it has a kind of disruptive sort of implication behind it. Like, here's what I'm working on. And it's, it's not the standard thing right no it's definitely not the standard thing and i i I feel that and i want to talk about that a little bit too and you said a lot of interesting things that i want to dive into about wearing many hats and working with other folks because i think and some of the work that you're doing you know and i and that i i do as well it's it's um it's i mean all video game work is is multidisciplinary but this seems oh definitely this seem you know with alternative controllers it's a different degree it's a different flavor of of multidisciplinary too so that's that's an interesting um thing i want to jump into but before i do any of that one of the first questions i ask folks when they come on this thing is um so a lot of the people that come on here are are folks who are either educators or um you know we had hayne bayless who's a he's a smithsonian uh award-winning potter um and 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 uh, like uh um you know, just a lot of people who, for most of their profession, through most of their work, they're making things for other people. Uh, and and as some as as a person who who you know kind of is in the same position, I often wonder, you know, like what are you doing for yourself? Like what what is it that you do with your hands or to, when you're making things, and it's not for anybody else. And so the first question I like to ask, just to kind of get the the micro, like where are you coming from? Is is what are, <laughs> what is it that you're working on right now? That's just j- just for you or, or or for like a personal project, a passion project. Um. Well, I suppose the main thing is I'm teaching myself to crochet. Mm. Um, I have a, a long-standing background in textiles uh, in the sort of um, traditional sense. Uh, my grandmother taught me how to quilt when I was a child. And so, so um, I've been doing that since I was probably in uh, probably around eight or nine. Okay. But um, I don't understand any of the yarn crafts at all. Mm. Okay. Not at all. So um, I tried to knit once and I just made a black hole. <laughs> like I kept adding more yarn to it and it kept somehow getting smaller. Yeah. And so <laughs> I convinced myself that crocheting would somehow be easier. Mm, okay. Um, and I think ultimately it's it's not going to be. 
because uh, yeah. it, it's a deeply meticulous craft yeah, and one that I'm not super familiar with. So I've been teaching myself that there are a bunch of yarn balls and different crochet needles all around my living room right now <laughs> because I keep thinking, okay, maybe the tool is wrong. Right. Like, uh, maybe I've maybe I've got the wrong yarn, right, or something. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's just something I'm bad at. But yeah. that's probably the the principal thing that I'm I'm working on right now. That's just for me. I don't really have an intended project that's coming from that. Yeah, because usually for me, small things that I work on are sort of practice runs or intention things for. Um, projects I want to work on like right. um, I've lately gotten into embroidery because I really want to make um, a quilt okay that's an alternative controller oh okay I, I uh, so this, <laughs> it keeps saying things that I want to um so what <laughs> so, so <laughs> sorry no, no it's great so you 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 love textiles and and is mm -hmm. that what led you I, I just want to make the direct connection here in case I missed it that's that's why you went into uh, yarn and, and and that material is because it, it, it felt similar or what was the uh, kind yeah. of um, I think that there's a big thing with um, crafts and maker culture yeah. in general where there's this there's this sort of um, distinction between uh, male and male and female crafts oh sure which is always hilarious yeah. because what right. Um, but I think that that's a real distinction people tend to make, but, um, yeah, I mean, part of the reason I went into crocheting was because it seemed interesting and distinct yeah. and like, a, like a trade I didn't know. And also people keep telling me that it's relaxing, yeah. <laughs> uh, which doesn't seem to be the case for yeah. me, but, um, it's supposed to be, I, I don't know this, the counting right now is, is the problem. There's a lot of counting in crochet. Right. I didn't realize going into well, it. Well, it's it's really interesting, and the reason I guess I, I asked that question is it's it's interesting because um, you can have a similar material, but ha but be using um, different tools and methods to manipulate it, mm -hmm. and it could be a completely different way of thinking as a result. You know, um, oh, yeah, definitely. So so like if you're using a sewing machine or a serger, or if you're hand sewing or whatever else. Yeah, it's just, it just seems like a less of a geometric problem <laughs> almost, or less of a uh, uh, I guess you, you mentioned counting, you know, it's, it, it, there's just a, a different, you know, like I do, I do a lot of woodworking, but I do it on a, a large scale. So I like to make furniture. I don't do, I'm not, I don't sit around with, You're not yeah, I'm not making a duck, you know, I can't, it's, it's two different, it's two different scales of things for me. And, and, and so it's, you know, it's just, it, it, and, and that's what I want to dive into a lot, um, you know, while we're talking today is, is like the way of thinking that emerges from, um, from, from making things and, 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 and where that all kind of, you know, comes from in a, in a personal way too. So, um, so like when you talk about wearing many hats, uh, you know, that's a lot of different ways of thinking in my mind as well. And especially when you're working on video games and especially when you're working on alternative controllers and things like that, you're, you're wearing a lot of different hats. Can you give me an idea? What, what are the various things that you're balancing and, and, and how do you balance those being the same person? You, you know, you don't, you can't like have a contentious discussion with another individual and then come to a, a an understanding. You have to have that discussion internally. How does that, how does that play out in, in, in the things that you're working on? 
Yeah, I guess it kind of helps that I've never done just one thing. Like I've never, like that's never been the case. Um, so like um, even like when I was in, uh, when I was in undergrad, right? So my first degree is in um, English literature. Sure. Uh, so that was my first degree. But at the same time, I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just also get like, um, I'll also get like the concentrations in film and creative writing. Yeah. So like, that's like my first undergrad degree. Um, and then, so from then on, it was just like, Oh, okay, well, what if I do this? But then I also do 30 other things simultaneously. Um, I've just like doing one thing at a time has never really been something I've ever done either educationally or professionally. And, um, I think, indie development at the scale we're at. So super soul is, um, effectively a three person company. So you can't be a one job person at a company that size. (laughs) (laughs) Like like if I'm doing marketing here, then I'm also doing, um, let's see over the course of my employment here, I've done, uh, uh, concept design, um, sorry, concept art. I've done a uh, UI design. I've done marketing writing. Uh, last year, um, I coined the term for it, narrative engineering. Oh, okay. Uh, when we worked with a, um, we worked with a girls make games to, um, adapt one of the games designed by their, um, uh, teenage participants. And so one of them had designed a, um, the sprawling epic. She wrote the whole thing. It was like over a hundred plus pages of dialogue. <laughs> and so it was my job to take that and put it into the, into unity. So it was a game. Okay. <laughs> um, because you know, it's, she had, she had written it out in a Google doc. Right, right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Which is totally fine. Yeah. But so I'm not writing there. Right. So it's like I'm basically, it's just a big broad, like thing. So like I've done all of those things and that's just with super soul. And I think the way you solve it is you just, I've always had a very um, comfortable awareness of what it is that I'm, I'm doing. So there's never been a lot of internalized conflict in that sense, because um, I, I know my limits. And so I'm never going to be an unreasonable coworker. Right. It's like, why, why haven't you done that thing? You know why I haven't done that thing. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to right. do it. I don't know how. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's, this, uh, there's a guy on Twitter. His name is, uh, I think, Venkatesh Rao. And uh, he had wrote, written something a couple weeks ago about liberating things to say to people. And one of them was, this was reasonably the best effort I could give you or something like that. <laughs> That seems right. Uh, I, yeah. I, I wish I could copy and paste that and send it to a lot of folks. Sometimes, like this is this is this is what you're going to get from me right now, and that's that's about <laughs> what it amounts to. Um, yeah, so, I also tend to list things a lot, so I have yeah. lists everywhere okay. of these are things I'm doing, and then I internally prioritize them. Yeah, and so that helps like this is a thing that has you know the most importance but is also on the shortest timeline oh sure uh eisenhower are you familiar with the, the eisenhower matrix 
No. It's a, a kind of what, uh, what's urgent is often not important and what's important is often not urgent. It's just a, it's one of those two by two grids with urgent and important. Yeah, anyway, it sounded <laughs> like it's just one of those things. So it's basically, yeah, that. right. Um, <laughs> and so, so what is, is that like what your desk looks like right now? Do you have notes like all over like a mad scientist or what are, what are we looking at in front of us right now? Oh, actually, um, since I just semi came back from a, from a long trip, my desk is actually very clean. Hmm. Um, that's what happens is, um, when I usually go on a trip for, um, my, usually my own personal work, I come back and I clean the desk Yeah. so that everything's in order. Yeah. And like, I have file folders with like all my receipts in them. Um, before I left, yeah. uh, yes, <laughs> there's, um, I have post-it notes and I surround my, um, my actual screen with them. And then I used to have a desk calendar, but the year changed. So it is, I need to get another one of those. And so I had a desk calendar, which has like all of my stuff. in it. And like, this is, this I prefer analog listing over digital. This is, that's exactly what I was just going to ask you is what's the, uh, why analog over why analog note taking and, 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 uh, logging over using your computer or your phone or, or whatever. I don't know if this is true or not, but when I was in high school, one of my teachers told me that um, you retain knowledge better when you write it down. Mm, okay. Um, and I think the idea was just to try to force us into note taking. Yeah. But um, the side the side effect was is that I I tend to prefer writing things down. Yeah. Um, it's also like the easiest way to just always have it like in my sight line is when it's like on a post it note. Right. And I can see it. I title my post-it notes. So like right now I have one that has my next project on it for my job at Supersoul. And that has all of the stuff that needs doing. Yeah. What type of user we're building towards that kind of thing. And it's just visible right there. Yeah. So that's. And I took down another one that was a reminder to do something yesterday. So, so this is interesting because there's a lot of, um, to me at least, because there's a lot of research that goes into not just taking notes, but doing things physically um, being good ways to create knowledge. And so like Piaget or Seymour Papert and constructionism, or like even Tim Ingold, who talks about thinking through making and the idea that by making things tangible, by making ideas tangible and engaging with like the real world, we actually retain knowledge um, and, and engage a creative process in a more meaningful way than you know, typical rote learning where somebody's talking at you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I also have, um, I have a central auditory processing disorder, um, which is a, um, a, like an auditory processing disorder. Uh, one of my, um, old friends used to call it, um, auditory dyslexia, which isn't technically accurate, but it kind of is sort of similar. I don't learn well when people are talking at Mm. me. Like I simply don't retain yeah. it. Um, I, I I usually don't hear it correctly. Is the actual problem? Okay. And so for me, like it was all it was always reading, and it was always like engaging with things on my own that became like the real like process for me. And so it always tracked for me that like I wrote things down a lot. So that's interesting. And I wonder if it's okay to ask too, is that like, is that what informs some of your, your work? Is that why you're, you got into, for instance, alternative controls? And you just seem like a, a, in general, 
talking with you about, you know, some of the, you know, just in this short period of time, the things that you've been working on is you're a tink- like a tinkerer. I don't know if that's fair or not. And, yeah. And, no, that's, that's yeah. And, and, and so I, what is it, is that, you know, the, you know, like that you learn uh, in a particular way, is that, is that part of what informs a lot of your work? Are you trying to share that with other folks? Are you trying to express what's the, what is the, um, you know, if, I, I guess maybe the, you know, and to add on to that, it, you know, if you can make a video game or an alternative controller, is there a, you know, would you always be inclined towards the the physical first and foremost, and then the video game secondary, or what's the, what's behind all that? I mean, I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say, right? Because for me, this is like my entire life. Yeah. It, it's hard to like say, oh, this is yeah. because of a certain yeah. thing, or this is because of another, because there's no distinction. Um, there's no like before or after. I do know that um, I was uh, diagnosed with a degenerative eye disorder last year. Um, that it means that I, I get um, extreme double vision in my left eye and only my left okay. eye. And so that's definitely changed the way that I've started developing in terms of screens because uh, my, my double vision is light based. It's a, disorder called keratoconus but basically um the way i even discovered it was i was looking at my screen at work and i realized suddenly that there were two of them yeah um, <laughs> which was yeah. An, an alarming thing to discover right. uh <laughs> just like sitting at right. work but it's definitely like changed how i feel about designing things with screens yeah because there is very likely going to become a point where i simply can't use them it's so and and so we're talking primarily then about like in that case at least about feedback mechanisms right mm-hmm. um and that's like one component of your work so what do you you know as and i love that because my my whole you know kind of <laughs> thesis is that screens need to die as far as being like the central focus point of of games they're probably the least interesting thing about a game absolutely why do, why do you think that though it's, yeah um because they're in a in a real sense, I think for a lot of people, they're they're a limitation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the assumption that your your player can engage with your stuff simply by looking at it is a peculiar one. Yeah. It, considering just the amount of people who can't look at things, right. but also is 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 definitely a bit of a something that holds you back. And like some of my favorite um, alternative controller design, like. Um, uh, Robin's line wobbler. Yeah, is it? It, it is a light, but it, it is a different type of display. But it's not a screen, and I would argue it's probably one of the most elegantly designed games to come out. Yeah, are, are you familiar with line yeah, wobbler? Yeah, absolutely. Should probably should probably ask. Yeah, no, I, I'm, um, yeah. The downside to like old alternative controller games and talking about them right. is that like there's a certain amount of you have to be right. there. Yeah. Um, they're very experiential. They're very of the moment, which is something I definitely love about them. Yeah. But it does make talking about them a little odd. It's like, oh yeah, of course you know you know this work that only showed in ten places right. around the country. Yeah, that, the line wobbler is a bit more ubiquitous. That's so. So for the people who who haven't seen or played line wobbler, and you can look it up too. But it's like. I don't know how you describe it. It's like a bunch of those things that are behind doors, door jams, or whatever, and. Uh, it's the custom made door stops. Door stops. There you go. And like you, you pull one back and you f- like flick it, and then it creates a cascade of of light 
It's it's incredibly satisfying. Well, it's a one-dimensional dungeon crawler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> right, and it's got a, right. It's 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 got you know the boundaries and 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 so on that goes with a a, a, a game interface as well. Um, yeah. and, and it's really elegantly designed, and it doesn't have a screen. Right. It has a display. Right. Um, but I think, which is usually how I break down games into terms now of like controller and display. Right. Yeah. And display can be anything from like auditory to like anything else. And I mean, I'm still guilty of this. I still design most of the stuff I've designed before has been with a screen in mind. Right. But that's part of the reason that the glow orb exists is because it's, it's not a display. It's a display, but it's not a screen. Yeah. It's well, you know, it's 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 hard to break out of the um, a paradigm that you've basically known for the the majority of your life, you know. And so, mm-hmm. if the way that most people have experienced, I'd say, you know, have gone through computing inter- experiences has been through a, a screen rather than through things like ubiquitous computing, where you can talk to things or you know, have haptic yeah. feedback or all that other, th- you know, then your mind kind of defaults. It seems to 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 screen-based things or like if you've grown up your entire life and there's basically three major companies that control the way that you experience games and that control includes the interface the video game controller the console and all of its hardware specs and a and a monitor then then that's kind of it's it's very hard to think out uh, you know well, that, um, i mean that's yeah, so one of the first major reasons that I started going into alternative controller design in general was because of my partner. Uh, he was building a game uh, called uh, let's see, it was Space Jeff. So Space Jeff is a um, exploration game where your character moves in each of the cardinal directions, but uh, each of the cardinal directions is controlled by a separate player. Yeah. So each controller gets a bu- gets a controller, and the A button moves. If you're player one, it moves left. Player two, it moves right. And so it's a collaborative game in which you all explore like um, this place together. Yeah. And you have to all work together because if you don't, Jeff rockets off into space. Right. It's space. There's no friction. He just shoots off in a direction. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's all about collaborative design. But what stuck with me and what made me sort of think about it, think about design more was that first, that first one of the first times he showed it we were showing to a bunch of science and tech writers who weren't really, who were older. Sure. And so he built pedals. Okay. Um, like, a, like a car driving pedals yeah. for the game. So each player, player one, you know, just had to push their foot down. And a lot of people weren't getting people to play their games at the show because all of these science writers just didn't, uh, the controllers are scary. Huh. Is what people don't understand who've grown up with them is that by hand, if you ever tried to like hand a controller off to a grandma, yeah, they're they're terrified, yeah. they're confusing, they don't make any sense. And, right. But what he kept saying to everyone was, "Well, you've driven a car, right?" right. Huh. And it was like a complete, it was a complete paradigm shift, really, because it was just like, <laughs> "Oh, wait, this thing I've just taken for granted the entire time that I've been making games, which is the controller." Right. Or even, you know, a Wazda set on a keyboard. These are not things that people understand. And that was like one of the first times that I remember actively thinking about like, oh, this needs to change. Yeah. One of, like Oh go ahead. One of one of my one of my favorite things to um 
well, not one of my favorite things, but uh, one thing I enjoy watching is, uh, you know, you go to like um, certain game conferences or Maker Fair events and somebody's built a um, some kind of a toy with a, like a makey-makey and they have people grabbing wires and you see the hesitance in their face when, when somebody like tries to hand them a wire as if they're worrying about electrocuting themselves or something, which is probably weird. Oh, they definitely are. <laughs> they, they're 100% worried about yeah. that. They have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, at least hand them a vegetable. Right, right. Like that's the thing. <laughs> you can just stick it on a fruit. Right. You know, maybe that's an extreme example of a, a controller that somebody might hesitate to take. But I think, I think just in general, you're yeah. That's a, that's an excellent point that that people are, um, you know, I think just used to a certain paradigm, and it's hard to get them to to, to imagine computer games being being anything but that. But but um, you know, you you kind of chose that route and 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 kind of you know and and ran with it. And I I wonder when you when you watch people, um, you know, pick up a, a different controller for the first time, what 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 is it that you're trying to effect in them? What's the what is the the? Well, it depends yeah. on the game. Yeah, right? yeah. But that, that's the other thing I like specifically about alternative controllers is that um, the controls are so game specific. Like when I hand you, well, I can't really hand it to you because it's huge, but the thousand button yeah. project, like when you sit down to play that, it's immediately obvious what you're supposed to do. There are a hundred buttons in front of you. You hit them. Right. Like I've actually had problems in submitting it to shows. Like when I've gotten feedback, yeah. the feedback is always, um, well, I don't understand how it works. Yes, you do. You just can't fathom that it's that simple. <laughs> Because they're like, well, you know, like the hat, though there isn't anything else. There are a hundred buttons. You press all of them. They change every round. Like that's it. That's the whole <laughs> game. And that's very confusing for a lot of game development people. But the reason I know it works is because I put it in front of children and I put it in front of old people and they all understand it. Like very few people sit down at that game and just don't immediately know what you're supposed to do because it's a button. You press it. <laughs> so. So yeah. in, in the case of that game, the specific emotion I'm going for is uh, when you're like eight and you go to your cousin's house for the first time and they have Mortal Kombat and you've never played Mortal Kombat before <laughs> and uh, they crush you at yeah. it. So I want you to feel like both of those people in that story. <laughs> uh, because that that's actually how I learned. That's how the first time I played a fighting game. Um, so... I feel like with a lot of alternative controllers, there's this aspect that we're talking about where it's the um, like the gameplay aspect. What what you know the what you what you intend the aesthetic you intend to evoke in the in the player. But there seems like a there, like there's also a performative aspect in showing people. I don't know if it's like the guts of what what you made or exposing in some way the DIY nature of. So so for instance, I watched a video where you were. Um, it was like a, a, a wire, a workshop where you were showing, you know, it was like a live uh, workshop where you had, you know, the, some version of the, the button project, but it was like, it was folded up. Is it? Is that right? Oh yeah. yeah. So uh, a couple, uh, well, I guess now, and now it would be a couple years ago, but um, in 2018 um, I attended a show in um, South Korea called out of index yeah. Uh, which was an amazing experience. But um, what happened was they let me know like a month out that I could go. 
and um, the button board doesn't really travel. I mean, uh, that's a weird thing to say about a play, a thing that's been like all around the world now, but uh, it didn't, it especially didn't travel then. It's built into an Ikea tabletop yeah. and it is, oh God, um, a little over four feet by a little over two feet. Okay. So it's big. Yeah. Um, and obviously I can't put that on a plane. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I potentially could, but it would be a real pain. Right. So when they accepted my game, I actually didn't know how it was going to get there. Okay. So I had a second version of the board that I had built to take to GDC that was in theory more portable. It was about two to three inches shorter on all, on, on, on all sides. Right. But it was also, and I'd made a giant backpack for it, which was terrifying <laughs> and horrific. It yeah. was, um, I referred to it as the backpack golem. Yeah. It was literally six backpacks cut apart <laughs> and sewn back together to create one backpack large enough for this thing. Right. And that's how I carried it around GDC. Right. Um, but that obviously wasn't a really effective way to transport yeah. it. Um, so, uh, I cut it in half Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I had a couple friends who do word woodworking. Um, one of them, uh, his dad was kind of horrified yeah. when I asked him to cut it in half. Cause he was the only person I knew with a table saw. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so like, I'm bringing over this, this project and I'm just like, I want you to cut it in right. half. And he's like, but how do we put it back together? <laughs> right. <laughs> And I showed him, like, I think they're called sash locks. They're for windows. Okay. So I showed him those, and he's like, that won't support it. <laughs> <laughs> so he, like, he gave me some dowels. So there were dowels running through it. And then I also have, like, a support beam, which is in that video of me putting it back together. Yeah. So that's the process of that was I literally took an existing board I have, and I cut it in half. Right. And then it folds. Right. And it fits in the largest suitcase I own. Okay. <laughs> and it looks like, and I, I, I do not mean this in a, in a bad way, because it, it looks like a, like a science project almost when you're pulling it out. Yeah. And and I, the, the performative aspect that I like about that is that it exposes, unlike a lot of polished works where it's hard for people to discern if people even made the thing, right? Like, yeah. you know... <laughs> It, and that's the that's a problem with a lot of the technology we have is you know a kid can grow up and you know you hear people saying kids these days know how to use computers whatever blah, you know, much better than whatever but they don't really I don't think at least they I think they they know how to use them they don't know how to they don't know how to how to build them. yeah they're, they're just black boxes or like <laughs> yeah it's the same thing with like I hear this a lot about like engines right on cars is like if you look at an older car. Um, like a big older car, you'll notice that like you can see all the parts of an engine when you open up yeah. the, the hood, like you can see it. And if you look at, um, I drive a little Honda fit yeah. and there is almost literally a black cover right. over the contents of my, of my engine. <laughs> right. Like to look, to like pull out the battery. I had to, I have to do like a lot of shenanigans right. just to get it out. Like there is no easy way of reaching in there and just like unplugging a battery. Right. I mean, same thing with a lot of laptops as they're you know switching to you know single form factor kind of thing. Um, the way your iPhone is quite literally glued right. together, so you can't get it. Yeah. So I think it's really powerful when somebody like you goes up in front of a group of folks, and and no, really, and you you take off the black cover, so to speak. You know, you expose the the guts of the things and show people that these are kind of systems that they can 
um, that, that, that people can affect, you know? Yeah, it's, it's kind of one school of alternative uh, design um, stuff, because I would also say that there's, um, there's a secondary one, which is um, people like people like Robin or um, the crew that made Dobatone. Sure. Um, who are almost making like professional grade, like consumer electronics. Right. They just happen to be like smaller teams. Right. So that's probably closer to forgot the like teenage industries. What are they called? The people who are making Playdate. Uh, panic. Well, oh. no, the the people who are physically oh, making right. Playdate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, teenage engineering. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, great. Yeah. So there's like teenage engineering or DJ tech tools is probably the similar ish, which is like small scale manufacturer of um, like these physical constructive projects that are still being manufactured and are still visible, but are, you know, they're not Sony. Right. Yeah. Like uh, another example that maybe some of the folks who are listening might be aware of is like the, the killer queen arcade cabinets when it was still only a game that you could get physically, um, you know? <laughs> um, so, so uh, yeah, and I totally hear that. I have a, a, a colleague at Tapal, um, Brian Schrank, who writes about this in, um, in, uh, in, in one of his books where he talks about, I, I, I God, I'm speaking about quadrants and boxes a lot and I, I should probably <laughs> avoid that. But, but one of the things that he discusses is like, it's almost like this, this, um, this continuum where you have game designers and developers who think of themselves more as uh, auteurs, I guess. Uh, and then you have folk, like people on the other end of the spectrum, which is like folk games. So um, so like Anna Anthropy teaches at DePaul and Anna Anthropy uh, in Brian's book is probably more on like the folk game side of things where Anna's making games that other people can participate in the creation of and, and, and so on. Um, and and I, I I you know I consider even myself probably a little bit more on on that and than on the tour end, but I, I understand what you're saying and that there are uh, different polish levels uh, maybe on, on the things that people make it. Yeah, yeah. There's also like, but I think there's also like less of a. I guess what I'm talking about in that sense is also just um, uh, there's like a different goal. Like I guess like um, like basically at this point, Robin can mass produce line wobbler um out of like a out of like a small studio like if you want a version of line wobbler he will literally retail and sell it to you right um which is different than like he's he's joked about he's talked to me about this before which is namely like he's asked me like what are my intentions to like sell the thousand button project for example sure and the, the truth is is like the price is just not there for me yeah Whereas the stuff he constructs is is kind of not necessarily designed in that sense, but like it's just a different. I don't know. We keep saying the word paradigm, but it is yeah. like a different like <laughs> sort of back end intention. Right. So 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 one, uh, and we I'd, I'd love to come back to that. But one of the things that um, I want to talk about as a jumping off point, and, and and something that's always interested me is about the alternative controller thing is, you know, while something like Robin's games and, and whatever other alternative controllers that are out there that are, you know, on the other end of this continuum or whatever that we're talking about, um, you know, for the, for whatever their differences might be, there are a lot of similarities in that, um, 
you might be able to scale something like Line Wobbler, let's say. But you, you made a comment earlier about how people who are listening to, to this podcast or really anything, you know, alternative controls is a fairly niche thing and how you might have only seen something at 110 conferences or something like that, right? And and I wonder what the, like, I mean, that's the same thing for Line Wobbler. It's not like a $20 Tiger Direct handheld thing that anybody can buy. It's still going to be something that's fairly, fairly niche. It's niche is just a bigger niche right yeah so is there is there anything i guess my question is is there anything beyond is it is 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 this always a niche thing then or is are are people engaging in craft and and in maker things and games is there some kind of path forward do you think for for the stuff that they're making if they want to make it at a you know at, at scale let's say well i don't I don't know. So the the question I get asked more since I started getting into alternative controllers more so than any other thing I've gotten into is like, what's your monetization strategy? <laughs> I've never had so many people care about how I was going to make money. Right. Um, but there are like manufacturers who build towards that and are getting more interested in sort of alternative controller style projects. Yeah. But like, it's never, I usually joke, but it's never going to be like, you can buy this at your house, like for yourself, which is semi true. I mean, obviously money buys most anything, but like, like I, I, if someone wants to buy a 1000 button controller from me, I will sell it to them for $5,000. You can, (laughs) but like realistically, that's not what we're talking about, but you basically just have to deal in like indie arcade manufacturer. Right. Um, which is, you know, Bumblebear, the people who make Killer Queen. Um, there's, uh, totally going to say their name wrong. Um, the, the folks who are now making the, they're probably best known for making Sky Cursor, and they're now working on the Intervic Gungeon arcade thing. I forgot their name, but they're, they're, they're not actually that far away. We've had them speak with us before. Yeah. And then um, 2-Bit Circus, yeah. which is out of L.A. Yeah. Um, but basically the only real like large scale dispersal strategy are arcade manufacturer. Yeah. Like, um, the thousand button project Sententable was recently adapted into an arcade, um, by the folks, um, at Wonderville and death by audio out of New York. Yeah. Which means like, it's now going to be played by a substantially larger amount of people just by virtue of being in one place mm-hmm. and not moving and not being there for like a one night event. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't necessarily view it as like a, a negative that these things are ephemeral. Like that's the piece I designed last year, uh, one night only, which I showed at Bitbash. Like the nature of that, de- that design was that it was ephemeral right. was that it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah you had to be there to see it. And if you didn't kind of too bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's because I've been lately obsessed with the idea of, I guess, alternative games functioning as a subgenre of performance art. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely that art performative piece in, in a lot of, um, in a lot of the works that you create. And, and, and some of that I think is, is, is just a constraint of, of scaling, of being able to reproduce the yeah. thing over and over and over again in some kind of a manufacturing process. 
Um, and, and some of it, and then, you know, as a result of those constraints, then it changes, you know, the author's intent and then the intent, you know, becomes in, in a way per- performative. Um, there's a, but there's an interesting kind of connection here between this and, you know, like broader maker culture, um, which is, uh, in, I, I have to assume, you know, Ian, uh, Ian Bogost, uh, you're familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. And he, um, gosh, probably almost a decade ago now, uh, published a piece, uh, a journal article with maybe it was Nick Montfort, but I don't want to, it, it might not be, uh, and it was called escaping the sandbox and, yeah. um, and escaping the, uh, are you familiar with that? Vaguely, okay. it's been a couple so, of years. So, in the sandbox is kind of like a—I don't—I wouldn't call it a critique, but it's like a look at um, maker culture, particularly through the lens of microcontrollers. And and the question that they asked was like, "Is this um, practice, this practice of working with microcontrollers and and working within this maker culture constraints, um, is is this something that gets beyond the sandbox? Gets beyond the?" You know, kind of almost like the, the 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 performative piece or the thing that's only for a you know a small group. And I don't think the critique is that um, that that shouldn't be a thing, right? Because there should always be performative pieces and art pieces and things like that. I think the the critique was: is there another side to this coin? Or the question, I guess, was: is there another side to this thing where it scales? And I, I see a lot of connections between that and what we're talking about, which is essentially the same thing. You know, you have these. Um, predominantly people are using like these prototyping platforms like Arduino microcontrollers or whatever else. What's that? Right. Yeah. Um, to, to make, you know, these, these, uh, pieces, but, but, but the challenge is then when you're using a makey makey, um, that it's essentially still kind of like a one-off, um, thing. And I, I, you know, I guess, no, I mean, I think that there's like, the, the question to scalability and alternative controller design is really just about like what level your constraints are important to like versus yeah. like consumer. Right. Cause like you've got examples of people who design in almost an alternative controller way, but at a different scale. So um, the people who made uh, Johann Sebastian Joust, yeah. right. That is almost, that's basically an alternative controller game. It just happens to use a PlayStation move controller. Yeah. Um, and before the before that, they were basically like PlayStation Move controllers were like this throwaway thing that nobody cared about. Yeah. And then like that definitely like opened the door. It was like, oh wait, there's this interesting weird thing you can use that isn't just like pretending this thing is a wand. Yeah. Like th- I think the heart of alternative controller design is reimagining things that you already know and understand, and making them different. I think one of my favorite games for that is uh, it's basically called button, but it's b.u.t.t.t.o.n which is for the um, Xbox 360. Um, It's a fantastic little game and the premise is that there is one controller (laughs) on the floor (laughs) and uh, or there's like four controllers, but like it'll tell you something like, okay, each one of you gets a button on this controller and you have to press it 20 times. But the point of that play is that um, most of the play that's happening there is happening outside of the controller mm-hmm. itself, right? Because if I tell you that so-and-so has to press their button their button 20 times, well, you're going to pick them up to stop them from doing that. Right. <laughs> and 
like you're going like you're going to maybe like go in and try to press their button harder so if they accidentally go over 20 times right. or in the yeah in the case of the games i used to play i remember people physically lifting people away from the controller right or like hiding the controller under them or stuff like that you know dumb things but like that's like there is like alternative controller design but using very traditional setups yeah and, and I think that that's one of the ways you see it happening on sort of a, a larger scale, if I'm not misunderstanding. No, no, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and I think you see that too with like, um, like there's a, there's a book called Codename Revolution that is, that's about the development of the Nintendo Wii. And it talks about how it's like one of the first mass, like massive, massive console hits that put peripherals into people's homes and created kind of like a meta game like an implicit metagame with a lot of the games that people are playing, because like you said, it's not just in the console where the action's happening, the action's happening, uh, you know, in the physical space that the peripherals um, reside. reside. N- Nintendo does a very good job of, of reimagining what their controllers can be. Cause if you think about it, the Xbox has basically released an identical controller every year right. since the 360. I mean, the Duke is probably the, semi-exception to any like controller design on the xbox or the playstation i mean the dualshock is (laughs) the same controller and probably will be into the future it's a solid controller design it's just also like dreadfully boring yeah and it's not innovating at all and then every year every time nintendo comes out with a new console they're like well what if it was different though Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) like um, what if it could turn into a, it, it could turn into a wheel right. <laughs> or like, you know, something like, um, like ring fit adventure, which is like out on the switch right. now is basically would not be possible on literally any other, um, system right now. Yeah. You know, we have, um, have you played with the Nintendo Labo cardboard kits at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, so, so we've got three kids and, and one of the reasons I like that is because it, it creates like these warm moments that I can have with them that you probably don't have as much if you're just playing a video game with a kid, right? Like it, it crosses that boundary because of the metagaming that's, that's happening. Um, and so yeah, yeah, Nintendo aside and, and, and all that other stuff, cause I want to talk, I want to talk about your work too. And, and okay. um, you know, so you wrote a piece a while back, uh, about the Kentucky State Fair, and and I don't, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's an it's an excellent piece. Uh, I'd recommend people check it out. And um, you know, you and it's a part of it. You allude, you talk about your grandparents, and you know, your work and how it it um, it, it could have or did not connect to them. But you you know, the the end had like a, a nice ending where you you'd finally done something where you thought that they'd. Am I paraphrasing this correctly? I, I hope I'm. I don't want to. No, no, I mean, yeah. that's basically the gist of yeah. it, which is that, like, frequently in working in, in video games specifically, but also alternative games even more so, yeah. it's very difficult for people who aren't in the same field to understand. Yeah. Like, if I win an IGF, which I haven't done yeah. yet, <laughs> but if I were to win, like, an IGF, that's basically one of the highest awards I can get in my field. Yeah. And it would mean almost nothing right. <laughs> to anybody 
in in my extended family and that, that's not a slight on them it's just that's the nature of building towards a niche thing right. but being in Kentucky State Fair yeah. because um in 2018 yeah looking at my room yeah. uh in 20 in 2018 um the Kentucky State Fair um opened up a, a new media category which was mostly designed let's see it was actually called interactive interactive art yeah there's a design web Louisville interactive art. It's one of those weird subcategories of art. And like they opened it up. It was mostly intended for like web design. Right. But it didn't say I couldn't send in a game. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I mean, they did, they did actually like when they weren't getting a ton of participants on the web website, they did send out, send it out to um, our sister organization, um, uh, Louisville makes games yeah. um, to be like, Hey, uh, if any of y'all have anything that could be like kind of related, you can submit it. Right. And so I didn't, I didn't win. I have a very large blue ribbon, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's technically um, like a sponsor award or something. Okay. Yeah. Sponsor. That. It just looks like I won okay. because it's the single largest blue ribbon I've ever seen in my okay. life. It looks like something we put on a cow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the point was, is more that like for my grandparents who um, are effectively not with, with me anymore. Um, my grandmother has dementia. My grandfather passed yeah. away. Um, this would have been like something they actually actively understood. Yeah. It would have been something that they could have told, you know, their youth group, the, the you know, the church group they were at. Right. They could have told them about, oh, you know, my grand, my granddaughter's at the Kentucky State Fair. Right. Like. It would have been something they would have understood yeah. in a way that me being an IGF or getting written about by Waypoint. Right. So there's – wouldn't have been something they understood. So that's that's interesting. And, and the reason I bring that up is because when we when we first started, you talked about how your grandmother was – you know, influenced your, your um, yeah. uh, work in textiles and she taught you um, how to quilt. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and then, you know, you've got this, this wonderful piece about kind of like – I don't know if it's, 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 you know, finding common ground in, in this game world and in this, in, in you know, in this personal world and in this physical space. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I just see a lot of interesting kind of uh, things coming out of that. And I guess one, one question that um, wasn't too heavily answered in the piece that you wrote was, was how did, how was everything received by other people at the Kentucky? How, how, how did, Oh, how did they like, um, generally, um, so we, sounds like I'm going to sigh a lot. I'm not going no. to. So one of, the, one of the downsides to the Kentucky State Fair, which isn't a fault of theirs at all, is that um, they weren't really prepared for uh, anything interactive <laughs> to run actively. Sure. So Kentucky State Fair, like I assume, I assume most state fairs, uh, runs for about a month. Right. Now, uh, my piece can run for a month, no question. Right. Um, uh, because before that, it ran for two months at a children's art museum. Right. Like, it could run for a month. Right. No issue. But they didn't want it to. Right. Because they would have to watch it. And, like, the Kentucky State Fair Art Department is a bunch of, like, little old ladies. Right. Like, who are used to, like, making sure no one runs off of the painting. Right. <laughs> Um, they're not going to want to like turn off power every night. Right. So as a concession, what they did was 
um, for two weekends of the month. Um, they let us come in and show the game. Okay. For six hours. So what that meant was basically for two months, you could turn them on. They really didn't want anybody to touch mine. They were very concerned. <laughs> okay. Um, it was actually the funniest inter- exchange I've probably had about that project ever was someone going, well, we'd like to put it like maybe under glass or something. I was like, I don't think they understand. I want people to touch it. <laughs> like, it seems cruel to like make my game and not have anyone touch yeah. it. Like that's the point. <laughs> but, like usually in the art department, nobody touches anything. So the people who played it had a great time. I had kids coming back and running over it uh, like a bunch of times the Kentucky State Fair gets something like a hundred thousand visitors. Wow. Okay. Like it is easily the largest event I've actually done. Yeah. Um, I mean, admittedly, a lot of those visitors are there to see the cows, or um, you know, any other number of things. Sure. But yeah, and I, I feel like it was it was positively received. Um, uh, nobody came over and was like, "What is this doing right. here?" Well, it seems it seems that. You know, it probably crosses some boundaries that a traditional video game setup wouldn't because, uh, you know, a lot of traditional video games assume a certain level of, you know, kind of you being blessed into the canon of, of uh, how to play, you know. Um, and, and so that's kind of like that, that's kind of what I was I'm, I'm driving at a little bit is like you're 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 making these things that um, that anybody can can play and and again in my mind this is especially since we've talked about maker things and and so forth is in my mind you know the maker movement maker culture whatever you want to call it is kind of an extension of um arts and crafts and it just takes arts and crafts into the digital realm in addition to all the traditional things that you're doing But, but what both of them share in common is that you know like the arts and crafts movement was initially a reaction to industrialization you know so everything's getting mass made. How do we take that back and, you know, participate in the creation of things. And in, and in many ways, this seems like that too. And, and in a way, almost like. I call it the democratization of play. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is, so tell me more about that because there's an, there's a, in my mind, at least there's a connection between, you know, just hearing your story and, and your, this is the, the abbreviated version of your story that I only, and only the parts I've heard. So I don't want to call it your story. You get what I'm saying that like you've, you've got this, you, you know, a lot of people go through craft, have this, um, I don't want to call it a tutelage, but you, you know, you get introduced to it at an early age from people in your family. Yeah, it's usually, yeah. it's usually a passed down system, right? Yeah. So like, you don't know a lot of, you don't meet a lot of people who like begin quilting on their own in their twenties. Usually you have some sort of background. Like I've, I've now taught like two or three people how to use a sewing machine because they didn't have like usually an older, usually older female figure in their life who taught them how to sew. That's not exclusively the case, but that is frequently the one. Um, It's really happy. A friend of mine who mostly works in 3d art, it just got his first sewing machine. Yeah. Um, because I taught him some basic stuff and he found out that it wasn't scary. <laughs> um, well, it, sewing, people are terrified of sewing machines. Every time yeah. they pop up in like a, a horror movie, like someone's like sewing over their fingers, <laughs> which is nonsensical right. if you've ever used a sewing yeah. machine. Like the idea of managing to get your finger in there is just idiotic. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry sure yeah but it's it's just like a fundamental misunderstanding of how those things right. work but um i call it the democratization of play because 
I think that we expect people to, um, both in terms of, it comes from, uh, when I first came up in any sort of game development, my very first projects were, um, I jokingly refer to them, but not really a joke, uh, narrative games about oppression. Okay. Like I used to make a bunch of those mostly in twine yeah. and ink. And so I came up in the twine community and I think it was something that someone like Porpentine was talking about, like how functionally twine democratizes the system of game making. Yeah. Like people who were previously ostracized from those communities can now make things right? like because the system for creation is so much easier. And I think you're getting that with Arduino, especially um, because it's just so well documented. Yeah. Like I, again, my background is in, is in English literature. Like I don't have a tech background. I don't really code, um, but I can make projects that are um, beyond the scope of even what I would have thought possible 10 years ago. Right. Because of that and i think both the democratization of play in this case is both like literally in the case of i can physically make things i couldn't before but also the it's the intention behind how i design games is that i want everyone to be able to play them i want you to sit down and just understand it yeah and have it make a ton of sense and have it be something you can practically sort of work with Hmm. So does that, and, and you know, we're getting close to an hour here. I don't want to eat up too much of your time. Um, but is that, you know, you, you so you do a lot of, you, you work at a company that, um, you know, works with, uh, amongst other things, you know, kids from either, you know, yeah. university or, um, or high school. Uh, you, uh, you make these games that, you know, are democratizing in, in many ways, um, how people can play and, and what people, how people conceive uh, what, how they think about play and how they think about how they can participate in creation of play. Um, and it, it just seems to me that there's like a, an edgy, like a, there's two, maybe two components. There's like an educational component to a lot of, of what you're doing and you're, you're doing things to, to perhaps I, I'm, I'm guessing you can say, no, that's not, but, but a part of it seems like you're, you're influencing and changing how people think about, you know, the things around them and how they can control them. Um, but then it, it also seems to be informed by, um, what, what's the, there, there's like a history there. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's a, you know, a history that you're drawing from and a lineage that you're drawing from that you're sharing with folks too. Um, First of all, is that even fair? Did I? No, that seems seems fair. I think that one of the things I like to do when we're when we're talking with kids and when we're instructing people is showing them that these things aren't scary or difficult. Like I bring a plug and play style button setup that you can just buy from Amazon. It's like twenty bucks. It's if you buy any arcade kit from Amazon, they're basically plug and play. Yeah. And it's mind blowing to people for the first time when they actually sit down and they plug those things in because they think that it's this inaccessible thing, right? but it's really not. It's just heavily gatekeeped. Yeah. And it's just heavily, it's just obfuscated, right? right? Like it's so hard to see that like, it's not as hard as it seems. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> 
And so there is something about like showing somebody how something is created. That's definitely a part of it. What, and I, and I guess that leads me to my, you know, what might be my last question. <laughs> I okay. hate to say definitely. Depending on how long one yeah. I am. No. So, um, well, and you keep saying so many interesting things that make me want to ask more questions, <laughs> but I, I just, um, so, so what, why is it important that people, you know, you're talking about how, how people can see that these things aren't complicated. People can see that these things can be made. Because people shouldn't have their choices determined by, by what is basically fear. Hmm. Like you, you shouldn't be afraid to do a thing just because you think that it's hard, especially when that that's misinformed. Right. Like how many people haven't made a thing because they're like, oh, well, I can't sew or, oh, well, I can't, you know, I I couldn't possibly do that. And there's something very destructive about that process, that that internalized process of like, I can't do this thing because I I don't know how. It's like, cool, but it's not hard. And I think that even at its best attempts, one of my biggest concerns with like, with like maker culture is that it's still kind of weirdly exclusionary without even trying to be, but like like right now you can, you can sign up for my makerspace in town. The one I don't, I'm not personally a member, but it'll cost you money, um, which maybe is a big setback for people, especially like beginners. Yeah. It'll cost you money. And then you have to go through all these trainings to like understand the equipment, which I understand, but like every time, the basic principle of design is every time you add a new step, someone's go- you're losing someone. Yeah. Like every time you like create another like thing that someone has to step through. Yeah. They're not going to. And um, I don't know why that is, but it is definitely the case in like everything. Yeah. And I think that the main reason it bothers me, the main reason that I want to push people to know that these things aren't hard is because I think that they're too scared to do a thing and that's not a good reason to not do a thing especially on a thing that isn't actually scary like i'm not like throwing someone out of an airplane right <laughs> but, like, the fact that yeah like when people pick up the cords of a makey makey and they think they're going to be electrocuted right or even like I, i'm on a, a social media platform tiktok yeah which is mostly teenagers <laughs> and there's so many videos of like teenagers cutting led strips in half and not understanding that the half that's no longer connected to a power source isn't going to run. <laughs> and you're just like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> and like, like that's a funny example, but also like it comes from a place of like, kind of just like a lack of just understanding on how things work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't abide it. I like I like that both as a place to uh, end our discussion um, because I, I I share that sentiment. I do have like a million more questions I want to ask, but for the sake of brevity, I'll I'll yeah. hold on to them. I'll put them in my pocket as I tell my children. Um, okay. But but this is this was this was great, and I I really appreciate you coming on, Amanda, and, and, and talking about all this stuff. As usual, we talk about the we, we you know. I, I lead with, hey, you're doing all these cool projects, and then we end up talking about process a lot more than than end result. Um, so, so um, you know, there, if you know, there's tons of stuff we weren't able to get to. But is there anything that you want people to know that you're working on right now, or that you want to share places that you want folks to go? Um, I mean, yeah. the best place is still probably my website, which is amandathrows.rocks. 
it's uh, not as it's almost actually, it's, I think it might actually be fully updated right now. Okay, cool. With most everything I'm working on, with the exception of a very large claw machine project. Ooh. That's coming in February of 2021. But that's probably the best resource. It has links to all my other websites and all of my work. Excellent. And I'm on Twitter at Barely Concealed. Great. I'll put that all in uh, the, the links and stuff like that when we post this too. But um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for having me. All right. And that about wraps it up for session 25 of This Should Work. Thanks to Amanda Hudgens for joining us. And thanks to Robert Lockhart for recommending Amanda to come on the show. Uh, As always, if you enjoyed this show and all of our other ones, check us out at shouldworkmedia.com and subscribe to us on all the major platforms that you can subscribe to podcasts on, iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff, or my favorite, Overcast. All right, thanks again, and see you soon.